Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. I am talking to Eric Alston today about the Silicon Valley Bank, and I'm doing so in a slightly different setting than usual. We are in Seattle, Washington at the annual Public Choice Society Economics Conference, and I grabbed Eric to talk about this topic for a couple of minutes. We are recording in part of the hotel lobby, which means that the audio quality might be a little different and there might be occasional sounds in the background. Nonetheless, the conversation is great and it's worth it. Going to be talking about Silicon Valley Bank today, SVB. But before we uh, talk about that, we're going to talk very briefly about Eric Alston. Eric, who are you? What do you do? Ah, uh, yeah, great to be here. Thanks, uh, thanks for featuring me, Gus. I am rostered in the finance division at CU Boulder, and I teach courses in blockchain and digital currencies, as well as financial markets and institutions more generally, such that. I have a lens on the Silicon Valley Bank kerfuffle, if you're willing to call it that. (laughs) And uh, I do a variety of research in areas pertaining to economic institutions, constitutional design, and digital governance, especially that surrounding cryptocurrencies. So the Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, you know, I'm just thinking, we get a lot of acronyms, three-letter acronyms in this area. Most recently, SBF is another <laughs> one that might come to mind. Uh, but SVB isn't really a, a crypto story necessarily, though the, the signature bank side of things might be, and we might touch on that. But uh, let, let's uh, I've, I've just jumped in and been doing the, the thing I'm not supposed to do. I haven't introduced our topic at all. So I'm going to ask you, Eric, Silicon Valley Bank, it's a bank... What, what else is it, or why is it a, a unique bank? Well, it's unique because it was potentially the largest bank failure since uh, the 2008 crisis, and nearly equaling in magnitude the failure of Washington Mutual during the 2008 crisis. So in terms of bank failures, large, significant and possibly indicative of broader structural problems with the balance sheets of many banks around the nation. Why is it called, and this is an obvious question, but why is it called Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, Located in Silicon Valley, but more germane to our particular topic, specialized in funding and banking um, a lot of startups in Silicon Valley proper. Granted, they obviously had offices in London because those that London branch of their business was taken over by a British bank. So definitely a bank whose size meant they had a presence across the country as well as internationally at this point, but they made their name in Silicon Valley and therefore catered to a wide variety of tech startups, which is a component of what led to their rather spectacular demise last week. Their spectacular demise and Phoenix-like rebirth did Silicon Valley Bank. What what has happened to it? So they were placed into receivership and taken over by the FDIC, um, such that the FDIC is trying to, in an orderly way, ensure that all depositors, including uninsured depositors, and air quotes around uninsured, uh, receive their funds back. 
And so there's now a new bank run by the FDIC that is operating in furtherance of returning all depositors their funds, at which point I believe that bank will be wound down and no longer exist. Right. So most people know you go into the bank, you see a sign that says your account is FDIC insured up to $250,000 if it's an ordinary savings or checking account or something like that. And if you have more than that amount of money in your account and the bank goes bust or it's a uninsured account like an investment account and the investments go bust, then you're on your own. You're, you're out that money. And in this case, the government has stepped in and said, all account holders at Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, we're going to cover your deposits. The bank itself is no longer going concerned, though. The, the shareholders, the management, the employees, they no longer have a bank that they own or work for, right? Absolutely correct. And, and so you touched on another important point vis-a-vis -vis government resolution of a failed bank in this particular instance, which is to say the uninsured deposits apparently were insured by the federal government because everyone, including depositors like Peter Thiel, who had 50 million of his own personal funds at Silicon Valley Bank, will apparently get all or nearly all of their money back, which is a rather unprecedented step in terms of our resolution of failed banks. And it's lurking there right in the nominal term, uninsured deposits, which the depositors can expect to receive back in full or nearly in full to be made whole, despite the fact that those accounts due to the amounts held in them, were nominally uninsured. So we'll come back to that and the, the puzzles and the challenges that that creates uh, in just a moment. But what's the um, order of magnitude that we're talking about here? I have a rough sense of how much money I have in the bank, but how much money does a bank like SVB have? And when we say it, it failed, what happened to all that money? So in particular, the bank's position was precarious because of it being parked in treasuries. And so it was the 16th largest bank in the U.S. It was the largest bank by deposits in Silicon Valley, such that its asset size had, you know, by the end of 2020 was $115 billion, And by the end of 2022, they had $209 billion in assets. So a, a little bit of money, <laughs> <laughs> more than a little to where, you know, Peter Thiel with 50 million was not, you know, probably by no means their largest depositor. And certainly if we're talking uninsured deposits, it meant there were many companies as well as potentially very wealthy individuals like Thiel who were parking a remarkably large amount of money. And in many cases, not diversified across other depository institutions in terms of their choice to hold that much money with this particular bank. So it's my rough understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as you said, the bank had backed up its holdings extensively by buying treasuries. So U.S. Treasury bonds over the last several years, and we all uh, have some sense that inflation has been very high over the last year or so. So the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates. And as those interest rates go up, uh, you have an inverse yield curve. The, the value of treasuries, the tre value of those bonds goes down. So if as a bank, you are keeping yourself afloat, 
So Peter Thiel comes and says, hey, I want $10 million. You don't have that as liquid cash. You sell $10 million of assets that you have, in this case, treasury bonds, in order to give that customer the money. And it turns out that SVB, I don't know the number, but let's just make up $100 billion worth of treasuries that they had bought over the last couple of years. And because interest rates have been going up, the Fed has been increasing the interest rates. The value of that $100 billion of treasuries has gone down to $80 billion. So suddenly, when a bunch of people come and ask for their money, the bank doesn't have assets that can sell. Correct. And so in particular, the bank had a large amount of now unprofitable treasuries on their balance sheets. And due to several other factors, they were facing significant withdrawal demands and so had to sell kind of in a fire sale, so to speak, bonds well before their maturity which meant they had to sell them at a considerable loss under current market conditions where treasuries are offering a much higher interest rate than those that the Silicon Valley Bank was itself holding. The idea is I buy a treasury at a 1%. It's a, a 10-year treasury. If I need to sell it before then, I can sell it, but it's going to be at today's interest rates. So I'm selling it at 4% or 5%, which means I'm getting less money than yep. it, was, it was worth. Right? Precisely. Um, but what about the question, so, so many questions. Um, uh, you, you, you queued up. For some curious reason, a lot of people decided to uh, try and get their money off the bank all at once. I'd like to ask you about that. But also, um, what, what does it mean that the bank went bust or that it failed? Did the money all disappear or that $209 billion or however much uh, you said was that they held uh, in, in deposits, that money doesn't just disappear? So in particular, two things forced it into the precarious position that led to an emergency announcement last week of an intent to sell new stock to raise money. And so the two things are, one, them being underwater on the set of treasuries that were on their balance sheets relative to prevailing interest rates today. The second was, to me, unfortunate for Silicon Valley Bank, and at a minimum, a testament to the fact that they did not have a diversified client base. Mm -hmm. However, the extent to which this amount of li correlated liquidity risk could be expected by bank managers is an open question. But what happened is, in the broader market downturn following the inflation that emerged during the pandemic, perhaps as a direct result of our fiscal and monetary policy decisions earlier in the pandemic, tech companies in particular have not been doing well. A week does not pass in which I don't see in the headlines another tech company laying off another massive tranche of workers. I believe it was Facebook in the last period saying this is the year of efficiency and this many thousand workers are being laid off in our next round of cuts. Mm -hmm. And so what does that tell you about the fiscal position of tech companies during this particular downturn? They are cash starved. Mm -hmm. And so in comparison to an easy money environment during the pandemic, when everyone was spending time online and tech stocks were looking golden, 
Now tech companies are literally hunting for cash, including through axing significant components of their workforce. Where else were they looking for cash? In the relatively flush bank accounts that Silicon Valley Bank was maintaining on their behalf. And so in addition to a precarious balance sheet, because of the mismatch between treasuries as denominated during the height of the pandemic, when interest rates were quite low, and treasuries today, was the other force of many, many tech companies withdrawing at a non-trivial amount, drawing down their deposits, which were part of the plus side of this bank's balance sheet. And the, the bank, as you said, they had announced that they were exploring selling uh, stock. So they, they knew that they were in a dangerous situation, a precarious situation, and they were thinking about, okay, how do we raise capital so that we don't collapse? And because they announced that, a lot of folks said, oh, my, my bank might be about to collapse. What should I do with my $50 million uninsured deposits? I should take them out. There was a weird phenomenon where since the bank does hold money for a lot of startups and startups have a small set of funders, many of those funders or some of those funders, I don't know what percentage it was, it didn't need to be high apparently, or I expect, said, hey, get your money out of this bank. Go, or more important, get my money that I have lent to you for your startup out of this bank. And that triggered a, a literally a, a bank run. Yeah, no, and the, the, certainly the first bank run that has occurred in my memory during periods that I've been teaching financial markets and institutions. So, you know, banking is still, to some extent, a game of confidence. And when that confidence is sufficiently eroded, by a variety of factors, including many we've already discussed, as well as some we haven't yet discussed, then it can become literally a self-fulfilling spiral in which the bank is continually unable to even come close to meeting creditors' demands relative to a continuously dwindling balance sheet on the asset side. Who, and this is just an open-ended question, and I, I expect there isn't an answer, but who ultimately is responsible for this? Um, you, you've said that these are intensely correlated risks, meaning that the bank had most of its customers from a small community and most of the assets it was using to back its deposits were from a single asset class. So the, the bank could have, should have said, this is not a diversified pool of assets. And there's this like greater than ordinary likelihood of a, a bank run. That's the deposits being withdrawn all at once. At the same time, the interest rates have been going up for a, a year or so at this point. There, there's no surprise that the value of bonds has been going down. So the, the bank could have said six months ago, oh, we, we might have a problem here, but also the Fed. They are the ones raising the interest rates, and perhaps they could have been talking to banks or looking at banks' balance sheets and saying, huh, maybe we should either factor this into our rate increase decisions, or we should talk to banks and give them some alternate mechanism to uh, uh, draw down and diversify their portfolio. So I, I just said a whole lot uh, as a way of framing the question who's responsible here or is, is this are bank runs like this just inevitable so i'll leave you to deduce whether this is a very messy 
salad of culpability with individually identifiable ingredients that are highly mixed together, or if we can more cleanly apportion blame in a, in a way more uh, familiar to your legal listeners in terms of tort and culpability and those types of questions. To me, it's hopefully hindsight will help clarify, but at a primary level, I think there are kind of three, three failures. Failure on the part of depositors to wonder why a bank was offering them above market interest rates on large uninsured deposits. And so many startups found themselves in the unenviable position of being asked why they had indeed put all of their eggs in one basket to where they could not make payroll this week absent uh, an extreme government intervention to resolve a clearly failing bank. Such that, to me, on the, on the one hand, depositors should not be let off the hook. Although, given a context where increasingly federal intervention in banking markets has been increasing over the last, you know, 20 years, as well as a context where those same regulators are ostensibly engaging in more aggressive bank examination and supervision in real time, one might forgive depositors for feeling like someone else was in control and someone else was monitoring their funds more effectively than they could. Mm -hmm. And so that's my explanation, but it doesn't exonerate startups and other large business entities that can afford to do some measure of due diligence to explore why a particular bank is offering them an above market interest rate on uninsured deposits, because that is an indication that perhaps that bank is taking more risks than other similar depository institutions. But that brings me to the second prong of culpability in this ugly salad we're dissecting, which is that in particular, the bank did not have a risk manager between April 22 and December 2022. <laughs> that alone is a, is a concerning sign, which mm -hmm. is aren't banks all about managing risk and yet you do not have someone in a core banking function of risk management for that, for that eight month period. Mm -hmm. preceding this fairly ugly blow-up that we're, we're discussing. In, and similarly, if you look at the bank's risk committee, which is supposed to be overseeing, to some extent, the activities of the risk manager, it doesn't seem to be the case that that risk committee had anyone who was actually specialized in the rigorous assessment of risk, including one of them was a winemaker. Don't get me wrong, I love my wine, but uh, it... it I don't know if I want my winemakers supervising the riskiness of my deposit portfolios. And so that's the second prong, which is internal to the bank itself. Clearly, there was a failure in risk management, especially because other, although by no means all depository institutions have to some extent diversified away at cost from the no longer profitable treasuries which they're holding on their balance sheets. Although a more general point that I hope we return to shortly is why do banks have so many treasuries on their balance sheets to begin with? But that's part of the bigger, mm -hmm. bigger regulatory context that's worth examining here. So we've got depositors who are asleep at the wheel. A bank without a risk manager during a key period in which interest rates change structurally across the entire United States economy. But aren't these banks supposed to be examined? Aren't they under regulatory supervision? 
So depending on who you ask, this is either a spectacular failure of the regulators or it's due to a, a non-trivial weakening in the regulatory supervision to which large but not super large banks were subject to. And so effectively, during the Trump administration, the extent to which banks the size of Silicon Valley Bank were subject to regulatory examination and supervision and stress tests there too was somewhat weakened. Mm -hmm. And so if you're pro-regulation, there is the culprit. We weakened the regulatory supervision and suddenly this bank went under. On the other hand, though, it's not as if they were not subject to any regulatory supervision whatsoever, such that I do see some measure of culpability, especially given that the interest rate increases are emanating from the government that's meant to be regulating these banks' practices. Yep. Really quick question. Um, what information does the government, the Fed, have about the bank's balance sheets? Do they generally know what assets banks are holding? Yes, that level of knowledge is generally the regulators are privy to that level of knowledge. However, the extent to which they want to peer under the hood is in part predicated by the number of examinations and the type of stress test that the bank is intended to undergo. So it's theoretically possible that the government could have obtained exactly that information. But part of the problem is an underlying accounting practice that this is directly a rule that banks benefit from, especially riskier banks, which is they can declare as a function of their ongoing balances, their treasuries at a hold to maturity level, mm -hmm. as opposed to their current mark to market value. Yep. This in particular, if you're just looking at the facial information that a bank is required to provide, they can declare all of those treasuries at the value they will have if held to maturity mm -hmm. as compared to the value they will obtain if they're sold in a fire sale due to sudden inadequacies in the bank's balance sheet. That's fascinating. Like those revealed here in, in SVB's case. Anytime I hear uh, the term mark to market, immediately I jump back to Enron. Um, and uh, don't, well, I guess we do want to be talking about Enron in this discussion, but a uh, very different sort of failure. But how we value assets is a fundamental question. And the, the differences between mark to market, the, the current, if I were to sell this today and get the market value for it, is completely different than the expected value if you do the thing you're expected to do. You're going to hold it. So I, I, I want to be perhaps a little provocative, and this will start turning us to uh, the discussion of why treasuries were on the balance sheets and uh, the, the role of federal intervention here. I'm not a bank. I'm a bank customer. I'm a depositor. And if there's one thing I know over the last 15 years since the 2008 banking crisis, um, it's that we've been strengthening our banking system. We've been doing stress tests and the Fed is on the beat and we can trust that our banks are not going to fail. So as a depositor, as a customer, when I see a bank offering a better than market return on my savings account, 
I don't think, oh, they're doing something shady. I think, this is great. The Fed is on the beat. The Fed is making sure that banks aren't doing shady things. We know since 2008 that our financial institutions are strong, so I can trust this bank. So now whose fault is it? <laughs> so I, I certainly don't envy regulators of highly complex systems, especially ones that are accommodating the type of innovation that the startups in Silicon Valley are pursuing. Because it's often, one way it's put is regulators are responding to the last crisis. Mm -hmm. Yet the last crisis generally doesn't resemble the next crisis coming down the pike. And so in particular, the forces that we've been discussing are unique with respect to the 2008 to 2009 crisis, such that to me, I try not to be too harsh in my assessment of especially individual regulators at this moment in time who have inherited a bulk of regulations that can be understood as kind of a lumpy patchwork that emerges in response to crises that reveal problems within our system. And so that being said, though, some of that lumpy patchwork of regulations involves reserve requirements, which is the incentive for banks is thought to be a somewhat perverse one, which is the more of their depositors' funds that they lend out, the more lucrative their business model, but the more fragile their position with regards to a given bank run, if indeed something triggers a crisis of confidence among depositors. Right, so the, the idea there is now I, I am a bank, I have a, a thousand customers, they give me $50,000 each, um, so now I need to do math in my head, a thousand times 50,000, $50 million, I, I have just as cash, and I can hold on to it. I can put it in a mattress in a vault in my bank, and it's, it's gonna be safe when you ask for your money, I can give it to you. Now, no one's going to give me money because in, uh, I'm not offering any interest and inflation is going on, so you're losing value. So I'm going to take half of that, $25 million, and go out and invest it and try and earn uh, uh, some amount of money, uh, some rate of return on it. If I earn 10% on those loans that I make, um, then I can take 5% profit uh, for myself and return the rest of my customers as 5% interest rate. And now we've got a going concern. So I did that with $25 million. If I do it with all $50 million, instead of making 10% of $25 million, now I'm making 10% of $50 million, and I can offer my customers the same interest rate, and I can make 15% profits for myself, or maybe I can attract more assets by uh, offering a slightly more competitive interest rate. So bad-seeming incentives, because I make money by doing risky stuff with other people's money. And I would agree with the characterization that past a certain point, the incentives turn perverse or bad. But how would you feel if you went to your bank and they said, we're going to charge you 15% of your deposit over a two-year period to provide you services, but we are doing nothing with your money. It is mm -hmm. perfectly safe. It is locked away under the tightest security that you're paying for as a customer because they're not doing anything with your money. Mm -hmm. That is not a popular business model, which <laughs> yep. is I'm looking to save my money and I get 85% back of it in a two-year period. Yep. And so 
it's natural that we gravitated to a model, especially given that many depositors don't need their money the vast majority of the time. I suspect Peter Thiel's 50 million in personal funds isn't drawn upon as much as my relatively paltry academics bank account, such that at the end of the day, banks are in a position where I think there are arguments that they can provide a secure service to depositors by loaning out some of their money. Mm -hmm. The problem emerges is that there's really no upper limit in terms of if they take more of their depositors' money and put that in riskier positions, the service is cheaper to where it becomes effectively free for depositors and the bank managers and their shareholders are making far more money than they would be in a position where they invested less of depositors' funds or invested the same amount in less risky positions. So this explains the emergence as a regulatory standard of reserve ratios. But I've already predicated one of the interesting components of reserve ratios, which is not all assets are created equal when it comes to bank examiners' consideration of whether a given bank is satisfying its reserve ratio. Some assets are risky. Other assets are defined by the regulators to be low risk. So let's, uh, let's just ask you the question. Why did SVB and perhaps why do many other banks dot, 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 have a significant number of government bonds, treasury uh, bills, backing their assets? Because those are considered by the regulators to be sterling. Those are low-risk assets that are not at all discounted or not considered in terms of their satisfaction of their reserve requirements. If you have treasuries on your balance sheets to a sufficient level, the regulators are happy. Whether or not your depositors are happy in that context is a function of when you bought those treasuries and how those particular treasuries' nominal interest rates compare to those prevailing on the market currently. So are treasuries secure? Are they low risk? With respect to Silicon Valley Bank, it is clear that treasuries were part of this toxic salad that we've been dissecting. But it's also interesting to note that the government intervention to resolve Silicon Valley Bank to ensure that its depositors were made whole is a form of risk management. Although it's certainly an interesting and ex-post form of risk management, and one that necessarily poses the question as to what are the downstream consequences of this particular regulatory intervention. Ooh-wee, I am putting my conspiracy theory hat on now and just tilting hard into this. So are you saying that the government put SVB out of business by raising interest rates so that the government could take over the bank and is now in the business of running banks? So, and I'll just quickly say, I personally do not actually believe that, but I am going to ask that as the provocative question. So I see a series of unintended, yet nonetheless vexingly predictable consequences resultant from a string of government act actions whose intent far exceeded any intent to take over a single bank. In particular, we made a series of aggressive monetary, but especially aggressive fiscal policy decisions during the pandemic. Explain a bit what you mean by that distinction. So in terms of monetary policy during the pandemic and in the years preceding it, and so certainly the 
latter years of the Trump administration and the initial period of the Biden administration are not exclusively to blame, but interest rates were kept low and effectively since the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis, and they remained low during the pandemic. So that means easy credit across the economy, easy money as it's sometimes called. That's a series of monetary decisions in what do we target as our rate, our desired rate, in terms of the actions of the Federal Reserve's Open Markets Committee. So in this case, interest rates are the flip side of what consumers tend to think of uh, interest rates, meaning when we're keeping interest rates low, this means banks can borrow money from the government or uh, anyone can borrow money from the government at very low rates. So they, when they need to pay it back, they pay back roughly the same amount if it's a 0% interest rate. But as they go up, then the cost of borrowing money from the government goes up. You borrow a million dollars from the government, and when you pay it back, you need to pay back a million and four thousand dollars. No, so it, the thrust of what you were saying was correct. Tiny uh, granular distinction. Individuals are not borrowing from the federal government directly. Mm, right. Nationally chartered banks have access to the most preferential rate on in terms of terms of the loans from the government. And then those banks turn around and loan at a slightly higher rate to individuals. And so kind of the bottom of the interest rate food chain, so to speak, has interest rates that are considerably higher than those that the nationally chartered banks enjoy. But nonetheless, those interest rates are still low compared to if the Federal Reserve decides to target a larger or a higher rate for the clearing between nationally chartered banks in the federal funds market. So what does this mean moving forward? What, what are the lessons? What are banks thinking? What are regulators thinking? What, what are consumers thinking? What are venture capitalists thinking? What is Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel thinking? That's a deep question. I would say at a minimum, we've exposed significant structural problems with a regulatory requirement for a certain ratio of reserves to deposits that relies integrally on the prevailing interest rate on government treasuries. Mm -hmm. At a minimum, this is a concern, and this is a concern that nearly 200 other banks are facing in terms of their own liabilities with respect to treasuries that were once deemed highly safe. Mm -hmm. But I want to just kind of take a, to pan up for one moment which is to say I was describing monetary policy during the pandemic, but as aggressively, we were engaging in direct stimulus to businesses as well as individual individuals around society, meaning we were issuing massive amounts of money into our economy. Mm -hmm. So coupled with a very easy money period from the post-2008 crisis onwards, as well as outlays of government expenditure that dwarf most of those occurring during our lifetimes, those two things together created a, a, an inflationary context that led the Federal Reserve to raise rates. Mm -hmm. So the Federal Reserve didn't want to put these banks in this position, but the negative consequences of inflation are sufficiently detrimental for any market society mm -hmm. that I think it was literally the lesser of two evils, which was put banks in a somewhat precarious position, but try to combat the ongoing surge in inflation that we're experiencing. 
That's a really nice point. I, I hadn't, I, the, the fiscal policy side hadn't really struck me. In effect, during the pandemic with all the stimulus payments, one of the phenomenons that we saw was people were saving a lot of money because they were getting excess money, they weren't going out and they weren't spending it. So we saw savings rates go up, people putting money into the bank. And what's been happening over the last six months to year or so, as we've been seeing inflation going up, the economy has cooled down, well, people have been spending a lot more. They haven't been saving and they've been withdrawing their money from the bank. So it's not just the inflationary monetary policy or monetary response of increasing interest rates, but at the same time as we've been effectively devaluing the bonds that were backing banks' deposits, many of which had been bought in order to back the large savings that we saw during the pandemic, we were seeing those savings drawing down. So it's really one-two punch on both the monetary and the fiscal side. Absolutely. And so to me, that's a major issue that we're going to have to confront, although the way in which Silicon Valley Bank was resolved, which was effectively uninsured depositors are getting their money back. Why are we calling those uninsured depositors? Mm -hmm. But I like to think through things from an institutional perspective as being a dynamic game. And so there's an intended consequence, which is we have banking stability, at least for now, as of, as of today, as a result of this intervention. But what do future uninsured, if we can put air quotes around that, I'm not even sure it's right to call them that anymore, mm -hmm. but what will uninsured depositors expect in the future if a similar crisis emerges? And are they more incentivized to do the type of due diligence mm -hmm. that frankly... Yep. Someone putting $50 million into a single institution, maybe not to Peter Thiel. That might be, you know, a very well-diversified deposit base across many institutions because <laughs> right. he's quite rich. But for a startup that cannot make payroll if their single depository institution fails, what lesson are they taking away from this? Mm -hmm. That they need to do more due diligence in the future or that they will be rescued by an aggressive government intervention? No, no, well, and to me, it's it's there should be a market for diversification. Well, wait, I, wait, did I just invent a bank? <laughs> <laughs> you did indeed, but to me, I I have serious concerns that we're heading in the other direction, which makes me want to re-ring the bell on your conspiracy theory, because there's actually a troubling grain of truth lurking exactly inside. Did the government actually want to take over Silicon Valley Bank? And so I'm, I'm not positing a monolithic, perverse motive on the part of the government here. But what I am describing is a possible outcome where we see considerably more government control of credit allocation in our economy. Because we've effectively underwritten mm -hmm. the risk associated with 
sub $250,000 deposits, as well as apparently deposits going up to 50 million at least because Peter Thiel says he's confident he's going to get his money back. Mm -hmm. And so the government is continuing to oversee the asset side of banks, as it has with reserve ratios, as it has somewhat interestingly with declaring treasuries as sterling low-risk assets for the terms of satisfaction of your reserve ratios. But if you read the news, if you read the New York Times, if you hear the discussion from people in former and current regulatory positions overseeing our financial and monetary institutions, they are clamoring for an answer as to how do we prevent this from happening again. But if the government has had such an increasing role in ensuring the deposits on the asset side of these banks, the natural conclusion for risk control is oversee more tightly the terms of allocation of credit that the bank engages in. Mm -hmm. And I believe I saw Sali Omarova, Omarova uh, making exactly this point, which is we now need to start to drill down in terms of the specific bank risks banks are taking, mm -hmm. because that's the logical conclusion if you take this A to B to C to Z analysis. I don't know about you, but I don't know if, it, 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 if the government determining to a much greater extent the terms of allocation of credit in our economy is desirable. In particular, in a market economy, that is thought to be subject to a competitive process among many individual decision makers who are competing with one another and disciplining one another through the forces of competition. But increasingly, if the bank examiners are determining acceptable and unacceptable risks for a bank to take, ultimately, they are increasingly determining the allocation of credit by major financial institutions. And so scarily, there's a possible grain of truth in that, in that conspiracy theory you floated. Yep. Uh, and as you say, it's probably not the, the purpose or the goal, but it could nonetheless be the direction that we're going. So many questions that we haven't even touched on from, I'm blanking on the name of uh, the New York Bank, uh, Sovereign Bank? Signature? Sig signature. The, what, uh, the difference and what happened with Signature Bank and First Republic, uh, what's going on with that, any relationship to uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, and that that's a big issue here, specific ideas for w will the Fed start requiring banks to value their assets mark to market? That would be a huge change. Um, so much we could talk about. But I'm just going to ask you one last question. Back in 2008, there was a huge discussion with Lehman Brothers whether we should have let them fail or we needed to bail them out. SVB, should we have let it fail? This is, this is the, the question of the moment. And I think... That, that's why I'm putting you on the spot and asking you at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... If we'd let Lehman fail, it would have been far easier to let Silicon Valley Bank fail. But it's a game of confidence, and it's therefore a game of expectations. Mm -hmm. And so I'm unwilling, certainly, to go on the record to say, unambiguously, we should have let Silicon Valley Bank fail. What I am willing to say is, this is a predictable consequence of, in the last crisis, not allowing a bank to fail, 
Then the question becomes of where do we draw the line and when do the perceived social consequences of letting a given bank fail become high enough to where it's politically unpalatable? Because that's clearly what happened in this case. What I am concerned about is if Lehman made it easier for the government to intervene on Silicon Valley Bank's behalf, then what are the future regulatory actions that market participants will expect and indeed in a time of crisis demand from their regulatory authorities? Because to me, the natural consequence of Lehman is indeed Silicon Valley banks of the world expecting a bailout and clamoring for one, even though their position was one that was clear to many independent participants, although the extent to which those independent participants put all of the puzzle pieces together is, of course, only clear with hindsight. Any last thoughts? Oh, just an interesting point that you raised with respect to cryptocurrencies in particular, which is setting aside the concerning sort of murmurations from our banking regulators that sound similar to a kind of Operation Choke Point 2.0 when it comes to banks' ability to engage in cryptocurrency industry activities. We've heard a lot about the systemic risks that cryptocurrencies might pose. In this particular case, the demise of Silicon Valley Bank proved to be a contagion in the opposite direction, which was one of the most predominant stablecoin issuers, Circle, and its underlying stablecoin, US dollar coin, spectacularly broke the buck this weekend because Circle, somewhat injudiciously, so blame is to be spread here, had 3.3 billion of its backing for its stablecoin deposited with Silicon Valley Bank. But it gets better. Another stablecoin called DAI has a huge component of its backing in US dollar coin. And so if US dollar coin's backing comes under scrutiny as a result of it possibly being deposited in an uninsured fashion, supposedly, with a failing bank, then suddenly Dai's backing looks pretty suspect in terms of laddering up. And so in this particular case, the contagion that everyone has feared ran in exactly the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to build your house on solid foundation, you'd better make sure the foundation is solid. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.